Hi, friends. This is episode 28 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much. I am so appreciative that you've joined me on this journey, and I can't wait for you to hear the podcast from today. We're really going to deal with something that, quite frankly, all of us struggle with, which is anger management. What do you do with all the anger that's pent up? And what does God display about his own character and how he wants us to reflect that character when we deal with really irritating people who annoy us and purposely try to hurt us? How do we deal with them? But before we get to that, I just want to remind you, Go to our website, thebiblelab.com, to make sure and get your study guide to go along with it. And if you want to use this study guide for a small group in your area, or even just personal Bible study, or or study one-on-one with a loved one, feel free to copy it, print out as many as you need. These are for you to use in your community, and the larger the Bible study group you get together, the more happy I am. I'm not here to make money off of this. I just want as many people as possible in the world to be talking about the character of God. So if you can use it, print out as much as you want. There's no copyright stipulation on there that you can't print them out and use them for as big of a group as you want to. So God bless you. Use them in any way you want. I can't wait for you to hear what the community really says and wrestles with this whole topic of anger management today. So sit back, relax, say a prayer for God to speak directly to you to really give you a specific prescription to your heart today. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Now what we're going to do, I'm going to read through five statements If you agree with the statement, hold up a yes card. If you disagree with the statement, hold up a no card. I'm sorry, I I have to say this quite frequently every week because every week, I'm so excited, um, we have visitors and we're always delighted to see new faces here at the Bible Lab. I see that some of our regular attendees have had some work done and I'm delighted to see your new faces too. (laughs) I better move on, I'm getting myself in trouble today. But be prepared as I read through these statements to hold up a yes card or a no card. Here we go. Number one, one of the people sitting in this theater has made me angry. One of the people sitting in this theater has made me angry. Would you look at that? 50% yes. The other half of you don't know anybody else in the room. Now, I know I'm making you nervous because those of you that raised the green yes card, you're, you're, you're going to be wondering the entire time, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Especially if you're married to the person who raised a yes card. Let me just help the men. Let me just help the men right now. I'm sorry, ladies, but let me just help the men. This is my perspective. Men, just keep looking forward. Just keep looking straight ahead. Because if you look over right now and say, is it, was it me? Did, it, did I do something? You are going to hear about it, not only all the way home, but all the way through lunchtime, and you just don't want to go there. Number two, I've been so angry at someone, I've fantasized about their painful death. Uh, be honest with me. You guys are taking a lot. Hey, you have to vote. You have to, uh, 
Yeah, your hand down means a yes. Yes, I see some no cards, but the rest of you are abstaining, and an abstention means yes. You got to be honest. I'm your pastor. You can't lie to your pastor. I'm going to say about 50% of you said yes, because I only saw 50% of you raise a no card. <laughs> Number three. Yeah, some, some people said maybe. That's because it's really yes. Number three. It's okay to be angry as long as you don't show it with outward actions. It's okay to be angry as long as you don't show it with outward actions. We are completely split on this one. Not only completely split, I'm seeing 50-50 yes and no, but I'm seeing a bunch of I don't knows. Yes and no. We're going to dig into that quite a bit today, so I'm not going to talk about it right now. <clears throat> Number four. God wants you to get yourself right with him so that you can get yourself right with the people you have animosity with. Jesus wants you to get yourself right with him so you can then get yourself right with the people you have animosity with. Yes or no? Oh, predominantly yes. I'm seeing about 80% yes or almost 90% yes. And I'm seeing some I don't knows and I'm seeing a couple of no's. This one's going to be the revolutionary one, I can tell. By the way, those of you who are new with us, these questions are, are not just questions. Um, they actually let me know what we're going to spend a little bit more time on. And so we're going to spend a lot more time on that one, because I think this is one of the places in our hearts and in our understanding of the character of God that will actually be revolutionary for us today. You're going to see this a little bit differently, which is a kind way of saying you should have raised the no card. <laughs> Last one, number five, Mr. T is not going to heaven because of his consistent use of the word fool. I pity the fool. <laughs> Many of you are saying no, because you have no idea who Mr. T is. It's all right. It's okay. It's okay. Books are great, too. They're fun. Books are fun, too. Today, as we continue into Christ's very first sermon, his Sermon on the Mount, we've walked through his introduction, which was actually comedic, and everyone's laughing, and then he uses turns of phrases to, to, to talk about spiritual morons, and, and, and then he... Um, goes, into, goes into another section which talks about your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And everyone starts looking at themselves because, okay, it was all fun until he said that. It's the turning point in the sermon. He's telling you, as I am gathering my disciples, and not just the 12, but but all of my followers, those who will follow me, I, I need them to understand my personality and what I really, really, really want. And in doing so, I want you to understand church has become something I'm uncomfortable with. And as Christ is there trying to explain who God is, he, he realizes that the church that existed in that time had not recalibrated to be effective as evangelist for the world. And he says, I need to recalibrate. I need you to understand who God is because you're spending a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of time trying to please God. And actually you've, got, you, you've gone so far in trying to please me that you've kind of gone in a circle and now you're really irritating me. You're annoying me in actions that you think please me. And so he makes this statement your righteousness must surpass 
that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the people who had dedicated their lives 365 and a quarter days a year, 24 hours a day, to making sure that they did not in any way offend God. And they were offense to him. Jesus says, your righteousness must surpass that of the legalist. For the rest of the majority of his sermon, he tries to unpack that one verse. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. That's the thesis of where we're going for the remainder of the majority of the sermon. Your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. And of all topics, he starts with murder. Murder. A serious topic. A, a, a commandment. He starts out by saying this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. No more laughter. It gets really uncomfortably quiet as Jesus steps into the depths of the topic of his, of his first sermon. Because you see, no one had ever spoken like that before. When a rabbi got up to preach, he would say, authorities say... Scripture says they would use others as an authority, but no one would set themselves up as the authority and said, you've read this. This is what your commentary says, but I tell you, this is, this is how it is. They set up and they say, who is this guy? What authority does he have to say, you say this, but I say that? They had built up such a system of protection this was not done nefariously. This was not done by a group of people who simply wanted control. They set up protections because they loved God. The Pharisees came about because they disliked very much what the Sadducees had done to the Jewish faith. The Sadducees were extremely liberal and were in danger of losing the specialness of Judaism. The Pharisees come along and say, no, 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 we can't lose what's precious. And they devoted their life and their time to do something right. And in doing so, to try to be righteous. But we can read in basically what is their commentaries of the day, their policy and procedure books of how they looked at the 10 wedding vows, the 10 commandments. And they said, if we're going to protect that, we need to set up some barriers so that you can tell if you're starting to, to break that commandment. There's several barriers that you have to break through before you get to that actual commandment. And so for this specific commandment, part of the commentary that you as a faithful Jew would read to make sure that you were not in any way coming close to murdering would have read something like this. And you can find it right here on your study guide. This is the common view of murder as held by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now, Sanhedrin is just a big word for saying, kind of like a conference official. These are the guys in charge of the priest. They really specialized in policy, procedure, and punishment. 
And this is what you can read in what they call gloss or commentary of the Talmud. In the section of not killing, it says, He is a manslayer, whosoever shall strike his neighbor with a stone or iron, or thrust him into the water or fire, whence he cannot come out, so that he die. He is guilty. But if he shall thrust another into the water or fire, whence he might come out, if he die, he's guiltless. A man sets a dog or a serpent on another, he is guiltless. And if we also look at the Babylonian um, Gemara, it says, Whosoever shall slay his neighbor with his own hand, striking him with his sword or with a stone so that he kills him, or shall strangle or burn him so that he die in any manner whatsoever, killing him in his own person, behold, such a one is to be put to death by the Sanhedrin. But he that hires another by a reward to kill his neighbor, or who sends his servants and they kill him, or that he thrust him violently upon a lion or some other stray beast, and that beast kill him, or that he kills himself, every one of these is a shedder of blood, and the iniquity of manslaughter is in his hand, and he is liable to death by the hand of God. But he is not to be punished with death by the Sanhedrin. Okay. Some of you that don't like our legal system today, you just got to read a little history to see we have come at least somewhere along the line. So in the time of Jesus, they had figured out a way of killing people without being guilty of murder. You could hire an assassin. You can push them <laughs> into a lion's den. You, can, you could push them into water and wait until the very last second that you think, yeah, I think they're going to die, but I let you, hey, you had a chance to get out. I let you up, but you stayed under the water yourself too long. It's your fault you died, not mine. This is the very literal legalistic mindset that those in the crowd who were listening to Jesus had about murder. So this is their thought about murder. It's not simply if you do something, we, we have several degrees of murder, which includes, well, it was an accident. Sorry, well, you're, you're still gonna be charged with something. It won't be as severe as premeditated or first degree, whatever, but it's still murder. And there's still punishment for you because you were found responsible. In the midst of that, Jesus says, okay, so you found a way around. You found some loopholes. You've written several loopholes here in the law. But I tell you, if you want to know what God wants, you've created your whole construct to protect yourself from feeling the guilt of breaking the commandment so that you can claim that you are not guilty of breaking that commandment. But I tell you, that God views anger and harsh words the same way as murder. So, with all that in mind, get your comment and question cards ready, because we need to discuss 
What inconsistencies can you see here in the Jewish definition of murder that Jesus was trying to clear up? And also, a second question we're going to deal with at the same time is that Jesus states that the natural state of being angry with someone will receive the same divine, divine punishment as murder. What does this say about God's personality? To equate those things together, what does that say about God? What are your thoughts? The Sanhedrin were talking about an action, and Jesus is talking about a feeling. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. So Sanhedrin are judging a person's guilt or guiltlessness by what action did you take? Christ steps beyond that and says, no, 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 we're going to talk about the internal, where you could actually pretend. Remember our question in the yes and no section. It's okay to be angry with someone as long as you don't act out your anger. Jesus says, no, 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 no. The anger is still offensive to God because God not only, we go back to the text in 2 Samuel, uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God sees the heart and he's deeply offended by thoughts of anger in the same way that we're deeply offended by actions of killing. Is he saying that um, God is holding us to the same standard that he holds himself? And what do you mean by that? Here's the question. Say the question. It's the elephant in the room. You got to ask it. Did Jesus get angry? Oh, it just got good. Over here. I think more than a feeling, it's the intent. It's what you intend to do and how you deal with that. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd like to change the word from feeling to motive. For two reasons. Number one, because you're a man and we don't have feelings, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a stereotype, yeah, but great. it's not really true. That's but... all right. Yeah. I'm sorry if I hurt yours. Okay. No, that's fine. <laughs> Go ahead, Daryl. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Jesus got angry. I think the question was why. Yes. What was the no, motive? Was, right. When you look at the times when Jesus got angry, there is a consistent thread. It makes Jesus very, very angry to the point of action when he sees people taken advantage of. We have this story that many pastors have not unpacked about Jesus kicking over tables of money changers and, and then kicking the pigeon cages over. And we think, whoa, whoa, he's really upset at merchandising church. No, that's not why he was upset. He was upset because there's a racket going on, a three-way racket between the priest, the money changers, and the people that were selling the sacrifices. They were all gouging the people. Where was it happening? In the court of the Gentiles. It wasn't happening in court of the Jews. They were taking advantage of people who they should have been loving into the faith. They were merchandising them by saying, I'm going to make money off of you. I don't respect you. I'm going to make it difficult for you to have the same salvation that we as Jews have. And that made Jesus very angry. And I'm glad that Jesus gets angry over that because of the motive, just like you said, the motive is pure. So the question is, so glad Joel brought it up. The question is, boy, isn't all my anger righteous indignation? I'm just caring about other people, aren't I? That's why I'm so angry. I'm thinking about my wife and kids. We'll dig into that more. In my view, it gets down to resentment. 
justifiable anger. It's inappropriate for me to get mad at somebody just to get mad at somebody, but if they've hurt me, then what's wrong with me coming back at them? And Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. Although he, he not only tipped over tables, he called them vipers. Yeah. And which is, at the time, that was a terrible curse to put upon people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Back here. Well, a little, bit, a little while ago, you mentioned something about murdering yourself. Hmm. And holding on to anger, what is the saying that if being angry at someone else is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die? <laughs> so you're slowly eating away at your own well-being by holding yeah. on to that anger. Absolutely. Absolutely. And once we realize that, we're a lot happier. When we ask the question, whose baggage is this? What's your baggage? I'm not going to carry your baggage. I mean, I'm nice. I'm kind. But you don't need that baggage. I don't need the baggage. So I'm not going to carry it. I'm not going to help you keep that baggage as well. Yes. Okay. So what about Ephesians 4, 26? Don't be bringing up other Bible texts in this class. (laughs) I know other people are thinking about this Good. I'm glad you did. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do Mm -hmm. not let the sun go down on your anger. Yes, yes. Be angry, yet do not sin. Which brings up the question, where is that boundary? That when I step beyond it, because anger is normal. God doesn't say be emotionless. God doesn't say have no emotions. In fact, he encourages us to be compassionate people, which means there are times we will be quite angry. The question is, what is that step beyond? And that's what we're going to try to answer today, Harvey. This is fine and good. I I have no problem with it. The problem for me is my anger I can justify because of what they have done. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't like what they have done. One of my great skills is to do things that will make them very angry. And now they're the sinner and I'm not. Uh, There you go. There you go. You know, Harvey, you would have made an incredible Sanhedrin. Let me just tell you that. And so would I. Because we, those of us who are cursed with quick wit, it's a curse because we know exactly what to say. It bypasses our brain and goes straight to our mouth. And we're like, oh, that was pretty good. (laughs) We hear it as you hear it. Um, It's a curse because we can figure it out. We, We know the zinger, we know your buttons, we know where your bruises are. And we can get you right now. We don't have to wait 10 minutes down the road. We're walking, oh, I should have said this. And then he would have said that. And then I would have said, bah. We, we, don't, we don't deal with that, which means it's a curse. Because I have bloodied up more people than I care to admit with a sharp word. We talk about Christ, and he was angry, no question. But when we come to the end of his life, mm-hmm. In what was done to him, he was, Father, forgive them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the goal for us to move toward. We may be at the place where our response is not that, but I think we're called to that response. I, I agree, and I'm glad that you brought up Christ's sacrifice, because as you picture in your mind the scene of the cross, there are those who are hurling mean words at Christ, 
how did he either reflect that back or absorb it or just let it bounce off? His response was not a quick one-liner. We know he could have called 10,000 angels. We know it could have been Sodom and Gomorrah part two for everybody around there. Instead, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Because in this moment, I realize they don't know what they're doing. And for the most part, as people offend us, if we could have the mind of Christ, take a step back, say, Holy Spirit, fill me, and help me to have a shared experience with Christ as I look at those who are intentionally not only hurling insults at me, but loogies as well. completely trying to humiliate me in the worst way possible in public. Give me the mind of Christ to be able to see that person the way Christ sees that person, to realize that that person is simply ignorant. They don't know what they're doing, and they definitely don't know who they're doing it to because you're a tabernacle of the presence of God. And in that moment, if we have that shared experience of Christ and say, it's all right. I know you don't know what you're doing to me. You think you do, but there's things you don't know. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that as the reason to say it's okay. It's okay. I'm not going to reflect back that intense anger. Question. Did, did Jesus give this example because if we have invited the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and we are to mirror God, God like a parent, when your child gets mad and you say, I could kill you for what you just did, you mean it in compassion. It sounds angry, but what Joel said and everyone else, I'm just wondering is because I can't play cards. I have no poker face. And I think that we as legalists... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you meant rook face, but that's okay. <laughs> Whichever. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. I, I can't play rook. <laughs> because yeah. it's written, and I think we think that we're hiding it, but we're killing another person's spirit. Yeah. And that is what God does not do. It's a question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. Over here. Um, I'm wondering if he actually, Jesus did not only um, was angry, but he also... Isn't there places where he called the Pharisees fools as well? Is it yes, the same? there is. Yes, right, so he broke both of those. And I, I would say I, I totally agree with you when people are taking advantage of that makes him angry. But mm-hmm. the, I think the core of his anger is when people are being taken advantage of yeah. and are misrepresenting the character of God at the yeah. same time. Yeah. I, I love that you went there. Can, can we take the next step to kind of touch on what he just said? Jesus used the word fool too. Moros. It's actually the word that we get our modern-day word moron from. It literally is. Moros. See, you're learning Greek every week. Turn over the back side of your study guide. You're going to see there's two words. First, Jesus says, if you, if you call your brother raka. Secondly, if you call your brother a moron. What's the difference between these two? Because Jesus actually used moros to the Pharisees. Raka would be very similar to even a playful way of saying, you are such an airhead. Have you ever said that to one of your friends? Yeah, has anyone ever said that to you? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) 
Has anyone ever said, you are so absent-minded? And all their wives are shaking their head and looking at their husbands. Raka, the modern-day equivalent, is very, very close to that. You're such an airhead. You're so absent-minded. You're not saying, you idiot. You are so stupid. Do you even have one brain cell in that skull of yours? That would not be Raka. It's very lighthearted. And yet, to Jesus, it's still a very important thing to not get in the habit of saying. In the time of Jesus, it was considered offensive because of their culture pride that they had. So if you called someone an airhead or an um, absent-minded person, it, it would, they would take a little bit more offense than what we do. But it's simply talking more about your external expression of your mind. It's more of an external expression. Moros, on the other hand not only had a sense of stupid or idiot. In fact, some of your translations actually translate it idiot. It actually had a moral context as well. And if you were going to tell somebody that spiritually and religiously you have no morals, you're such an idiot, you are immoral in how you think, and how you do things that causes you to act unrighteous. That is what Moros had in the Jewish context. Much more serious. It'd be more like you're, you're telling someone that they're a scoundrel or a creep and meaning it in a moral way. I can't trust you. Are you, are you a con artist? That's what it's asking. On the inside, I've, I've got to ask myself a question. Are you really that dumb or are you really that smart? Are you really that conniving? Because it's one of those two. You're either absolutely an idiot to get yourself in this situation or you are such a conniving person that you have orchestrated this thing so that you get what you want, even though it's immoral. That's the context of moros. So when Jesus uses that term and uses it in the text here, you can see the difference. It's not just, well, fool um, is bad, but idiot is horrible. Don't say that word. It's really more of what's going on on the inside. So based on an understanding of that, I want us to, I want to take a step into the last couple of verses, verses 23 through 26, which read, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Hmm. Can I ask two questions at the same time? You decide which one you want to answer. Why do you think Christ would use the scenario of being at the altar when you remember an offense? 
Why would that be such an important time to think about those kinds of things? And secondly, in verse 25, is Jesus speaking only about earthly courts? Or is he speaking metaphorically about the heavenly courts as well? If so, what is Jesus trying to tell us that God wants? Who wants to respond? Right up here. Thank you. This is one of those topics that I really gotten a lot of, uh, I guess, help from the twelve-step tradition about. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things my sponsor told me when I was like first coming into the program was that, you know, if you do somebody wrong, you gotta you gotta apologize. Yeah. And um, I think the the fact that like, that I still try to hold myself to that. It really keeps me honest around people I, I don't necessarily like. Yeah. Because there's nothing worse in the universe than having to apologize to somebody that just despises you, man. Yeah, yeah. But I, I find myself having to do it from time to time. Um, I guess on a deeper level, though, there's always the... Uh, the stuff you can't apologize for, the stuff that hmm. isn't outward enough, it's intentional or it's like, you know, below the surface enough yeah. that it has to be between you and God to apologize for it hmm. because you can't really bring it out, you know? Yeah. But I, I think that, that really, I don't know, I, I think it's helped me a lot to, to leave those things behind and say, yeah. you know, I was wrong, I made a mistake, I lashed out at you, I'm sorry. And even if that person like, can take that to other people and say, well, look, this guy's a jerk, you know, hmm. I, I, I think it, it's helped me to be humble on that level, so I, yeah. I don't know if that helps anybody else, but I'm sure it's it good does. for me. I'm sure it does, thank you. Thank you so much, Joel. You bring up a, an important, an, an important um, point there about sometimes feeling like you just got to go to God about it first. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second. It's not only the hurt and harm that I visit upon other people, but inwardly is what it does to myself and my relationship with God. Yeah. It is extremely harmful and hurtful. It really is, because when, when you are offended, when you're hurt, when your soul is bleeding, what are you thinking about? Thinking about your pain. It's just constant. You, you can't. There, every single person here, let's not pretend, every single person here has gone through at least one situation where it just absorbed all your energies. You couldn't think about anything. You lost sleep over it. You couldn't concentrate at work or at school or wherever you were. You're driving and you're like, how did I even arrive at my destination? I don't remember the road between here and there and all the turns because I, I have been completely absorbed in this pain. We've all dealt with it. Some of us, many, many times. As we look at that, I agree with your, your comment 
Because what does it do with our ability to focus our energies, our positive love, our out, outlook on life, our fulfillment of our, of our personal life purpose and calling? What does it do when we're completely distracted by the pain? Black. I recall in a class in the university, a Jesuit theologian saying, hell is not the fire. That's not what it's about. It's that overwhelming sense of bereft because you've lost the relationship with God and God's love. It is extremely painful. Absolutely. Over here. Uh, it might be a just technical question, but... Uh... Will ever God accept our gift or our apology if we, for some reason, cannot ask forgiveness to others? Ah. Togar, why are you asking the most important question? I mentioned that I'm coming back to Joel's comment a couple of comments ago, and you've, you've brought us back. Because in Christ's telling of this sermon, and as he expresses, what, sh what should you do at a moment that you and, a, and a, another individual have this conflict, this animosity between you? It's interesting that he should use the picture and use the time and the setting of someone being in church. He could have used any time. If you're, if you're going about your business during the day and you think about it, drop what you're doing and go ask for it. He didn't. Everything Jesus says is not only specific, but it is eternally brilliant. This is the Son of God, God himself speaking. He can choose any words he wants. He is so much more brilliant than us that we're still figuring out what he was saying. And in this moment, in this sermon, he chooses a very specific scenario. If you look at why would, why would he use this time? You're coming before the altar with your sacrifice. Why would that be the time that God would choose to say, drop that? It doesn't make sense to the people yet because he hasn't yet preached to them on how to pray. But if you just fast forward a little bit and he's teaching his disciples how to pray, we see a connection. When he says the words, when you pray, say, and forgive me my trespasses in the same way that I forgive those who have trespassed against me. How in the world can you, before the altar of God, say, Lord, forgive me of everything, wipe me clean and, and white as snow, and you know, erase all of my deeds from the from the, the bad deeds book and save me? when I'm not willing to go to someone and say, you know what, let's, let's just, let's hit the reset button. You know, I, I offended you. I know I started it. I blamed you for a while, but I know I take 100% responsibility for my actions. For some reason, God has set up in his justice system the ability for you to decide how lenient he is on you. I think it was no mistake that in this sermon that Jesus uses this scenario so that you understand you are in so much more need of forgiveness than anyone who ever might offend you. Puts things in perspective, doesn't it? When you're at the altar saying, forgive me my debts the same as I'm 
Well, except for that guy, and except for her, and except for that, and well, he's a jerk anyways, he's not going to heaven. And we rationalize away people that we do not need to forgive, who have committed things that literally are less offensive than what we've done to God. And it's my opinion that as I read through this, that Jesus used that specific scenario to remind us that even though we're really quick to judge, we should be even quicker to forgive because we all stand in that need because of the system God put in place of how we get to decide how lenient God is on us. I just had an idea. How about if we flip this to the person who has been wronged? And this person has feelings about this. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that this person, whether they go to person number one or not, they need to get on their knees and ask for forgiveness as well. Mm -hmm. I, I absolutely agree. In fact, when you look at how the words are constructed there in the text, it's more likely that the person that you're going to from the altar is someone that you are responsible for starting the fight. Okay? But we all know that in every fight, there's not a sing just a single punch. And we lose track of who had the first punch. And so in this case, though, how Jesus says it is he wants you to take responsibility that you are the offender, whether you feel like it or not. You're the offender. And in some way, you need to take responsibility, 100% responsibility, to get this relationship mended. Um, I'm going to cheat. I have, a, I have a question and a comment. The question <laughs> is, is, since you know, talking about the Greek, bringing that up, I wonder what... Um, Verse 22, actually, going back to that, sorry, what it would actually be in the Greek, if anybody knows, just because I know in English we do have different translations of that. I know in the NIV here it reads, um, just who is angry with a brother or sister, but even just going back to the new King James that um, I checked and it reads the same way as the original King James, it, it throws in uh, who is angry without a cause. Um, so I was wondering... Um, if we had any context back to yeah, what the we, Greek would have said. Yeah, we, we do have context for that. Some translations do have without a cause, mm -hmm. but um, because we've been able to find uh, manuscripts that were closer to the time of writing, um, older manuscripts, um, we don't find that phrase. So certain translations like the RSV, ESV, others uh, were, the, were some of the first to start removing that phrase because people were getting a different idea uh, about it. And, like human nature, we start saying, okay, so it's okay if I have a cause. Um, but in the original text, it is most unlikely that it was either in the intent of Christ who spoke it, and we definitely can see it was not part of the written, um, more older manuscripts, this without cause. So I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people, especially reading um, certain translations, can get a different idea of the character of God based upon that clause. It's kind of an escape clause for us. Um, I grew up with that clause, and so that's what I believe. Well, as long as I have a good enough reason, I can be angry. But I think what we have to be careful about is it's not in the original text as we can, as we can find it, which means that Christ didn't say there's any escape clause. He, he wants us to find Christian anger management. 
an ability to do what we talked about earlier, which is to see these people with his eyes. I don't know about you, but my experience has been uh, when I was younger, less mature, and lower self-esteem, I seem to get quite offended quite often. And the more God has made himself known in my life, and the more I've acknowledged the gifts that I have that I don't deserve, and I acknowledge my own failures, but also acknowledge that God is still able to use me despite that, the, the less these things around me really offend me and, and don't bother me as much. I still get offended because there's still mean people in the world, and I'm still a target of the enemy who wants to discourage me. But I found that as we continue toward the mind of Christ, that when people offend us, there is a management technique that God implants in us with his spirit to say, see them the way I see them. They just don't know what they're doing. There is a story behind those words that we don't even know. As I hear the stories of people who have the most acting out behaviors, I, I was a teacher. I've gone back and forth between teaching and, and preaching for my 25 years of ministry. And I came to the place to where the kids who had the greatest amount of acting out behaviors in the first week of class, I knew immediately those are going to be my best friends. Because the moment I sit them down and I hear their story and I realize just how tragic their life has been up to that moment, I understand why there are barbs on them. I understand why this stuff spews out of their mouth. I understand this pent-up boiling anger that they're just looking to let out. I understand it more. And I see them with the eyes of Christ. And I understand that it's not me that they're that angry at. Yeah, I might have made them a little bit mad, but that response was not all me. This is our opportunity as the body of Christ to embrace a hurting, dark world. Back here, you've had your hand up, and we're going to come to this one first. Yes. The uh, context for Jesus' statement here in the temple recalls, in my mind, um, the statement uh, that God makes to Cain in uh, Genesis, the Cain and Abel story, the, the, the offering, and God says to Cain, if you don't get a hold of this, it's going to get you. So there's a somewhat parody between something that's as old as almost as time and Jesus coming back to it again now. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I, I love it. A lot of times um, when I've spoken to people who, after the fact, they say, I, I lost my temper. Um, I always say, no, I think you just expressed your temper. Um, you didn't lose it. It was there. I saw it. Um, <laughs> okay. I have a problem with this love your enemy thing. It's easy to say and very yeah. difficult to do. Yeah. In light of what is going on in the world today, um, how do we love those that completely want to annihilate us? And yeah. how can God love them? Yeah. How did Christ love those who totally wanted to annihilate him? That's our best example. We're going to see him unpack this more and more in the sermon because he's coming to that. He's coming about the whole love your enemies part. We're going to have to wrestle with that. We're going to have to decide what does the character of God consistently show us as a better way. Uh, we know of the heroes of faith in the book of Hebrews yeah. and how God has forgiven them because they were imperfect. Samson is in that list. That's right. 
and, and I'm just wondering, we've talked about Jesus saying vipers and fools and <laughs> getting angry, righteously angry. Yeah. But I'm wondering in his prayer life if he prayed to his father for forgiveness hmm. for those feelings and, and flow of adrenaline. <laughs> and, and therefore, we say he was sinless because he, too, tempted like as we are, was forgiven. Just a question. I, yeah, I can see where you're going with it. We, we don't have enough evidence to, to substantiate that um, from Scripture. The thing I want us to come back to is we need to be careful when we try to slice Jesus into a two-piece pie. He was half human and half divine, and that human nature, he, it was only because of his half divine that he was able to control that half human nature. That's, that's, not, that's not how it is. Um, according to Scripture, we see he was 100% God and 100% man. So I don't think in the times that he was in prayer with his father that he was asking for forgiveness nor um, trying to, to figure out how to love them because like he told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. We, we're the same. And so as they might have commiserated together or strategized together, I don't think at any time Jesus looked at mankind and says, I'm really, I'm really tempted to not love you. Um, because he was 100% God. I think, I think his temptation was, is, has always been to be too generous and too merciful. Um, he is such a loving God. But Jesus was 100% God. And so I, I, for that reason, I would step away from thinking at any time that he had to ask forgiveness for, you know, mean thoughts that he might have had um, unjustly toward people. Yes. Uh, one of the things that's helped me in evaluating people is jumping ahead a little bit in Matthew to Matthew 7.1. Yeah. Do not judge mm -hmm. or you too will be judged in the same way. Yeah. So in counseling, you deal with this concept of projection. Yeah. The behaviors we, we hate in others are our own. And so that's helped me at least evaluate. Not that that works every time. Yeah. But it really helps you see you're many times the problem, not the person you're dealing with. Ah, now, now, now you made it personal. Thanks. Now I got stuff I got to work on. <laughs> now I got a whole week of stuff to work on. I wish we could talk about this more and more, but we're coming to a close. But the one thing that I want you to see beyond everything else as we've looked at this segment of Christ's sermon and we've tried to dig in and say, what is he trying to say for me today? The number one thing I think God is trying to communicate to us is that those of us who follow him live a different life. It's a life that can be free of painful anger. It's a life that can live in a sense of ignorant bliss, a life that no matter what someone does to you, you don't have to carry that baggage. That's why Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, because it's much lighter than any burden you could ever carry on your own. Jesus says later on, he says, love your neighbor as yourself, which is the way we translate it. But the way people heard it in their language is love people because they are the same as you which was their way of saying, look for the similarities in people and you'll be less likely to hate that person. You'll be most likely to love them because look how much we have in common. 
God says to you today, you can have a freedom and a joy in life despite the fact that people may hurl insults at you and spit vile words your way and try to publicly humiliate you. If that's happened to you in the past and you're still hanging on to it, Jesus says there's a better way. There's freedom today. A way of saying, in the same way that Christ was able to somehow manage through a crowd that half of them wanted him dead, Christ was still able to look and say, forgive them, because I just don't think they know what they're doing. In that same way today, no matter what has happened in your past, no matter who it is, no matter how close they are to you in relation or how distant they are in a previous job, God says today, you can just let it go. You can live and experience the joy of freedom of no longer living in a burden of anger. And today, at this moment, as we pray, you can let it all go and live a life beyond the life experienced by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Man, I hope this conversation was just as helpful to your life as it was to mine. I just pray that God helps us to truly show this love and not to express anger like the rest of the world, just so the people of this world truly can get a glimpse at the true character of God. Now, you don't want to miss episode 29. We're going to talk about two very sensitive topics, and we're going to take a look at how God showed his character by discussing his views of adultery and divorce. It's not what you think. And so I invite you to come back and we'll see you at episode 29. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 1030 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.